Welcome to the Nonprofit News Feed. All the news from the best sector. We give you the highlights of what we're seeing in nonprofits across the U.S. in the news. This is a proud production of WholeWhale.com, a B Corp digital agency. All right, let's get to the summary. This week on the Nonprofit News Feed for the week of September 25th, we're talking about lithium reserves versus climate resilience and indigenous people's calls to protect the land. And we'll also be covering some things about how young people are filing lawsuits to protect the environment and some misgivings about a nonprofit down in Florida. But let's jump into it, Nick. How's it going? It's going great, George. I want to start us off with this top story, and this is kind of a spicy one. So I'll read the description and then we can get into it. So our lead story for this week is that lithium reserves discovered in 2020 have recently renewed excitement over the United States' ability to be self-sufficient when it comes uh, to mining lithium, according to this reporting from Insider and others. Lithium, of course, is a key ingredient in building lithium-ion batteries, which are integral to the electric car and other sustainable environmental initiatives in the United States um, to move us off of fossil fuels. So newly released findings suggest that the volume of lithium found in this Oregon, Nevada area is among the most concentrated of known deposits and could make the site a strategic gold mine for the United States from an environmental, economic, and even national security standpoint when you start um, bringing geopolitics into it. However, indigenous groups counter that the deposits are actually on land vital to indigenous use. A Al Jazeera article says, uh, quotes a tribal leader that, quote, there's burial sites there, there's medicines and roots there, there's ecosystems, there is still life back there. So, of course, the indigenous community kind of posits that this land is actually sacred and actually has been going through the process of trying to bring legal challenges to stop construction that were overruled by federal judges, which allowed the mining to essentially continue. So to this day, construction has started in the site to mine this lithium, again, dismissing the legal actions taken by activists and conservationists. So, George, we have a complicated story here, and I think depending on your perspective, kind of conflicting narratives here where essentially we're in the unfortunate position in which a resource vital for climate resilience is, in this case, pitted against indigenous calls to protect the land. And George, you and I were talking before this podcast, and this is not the first time that this has happened, right? There is constantly this tension between development and rights, um, even when that development brings a lot of power, for example, to communities, there are human rights implications to that also as well. And it's a tricky debate. So George, I'm going to pause. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts and then we'll, we'll move on. So I will say we actually did a survey, which I resent out. So if you get the newsletter, I'm sorry for the second one. It happens. But I was very interested to find that we're pretty much split 50-50 on this vote. And the question was as follows. Would you mine for lithium or not, given the context that we provided in that newsletter? And 50% said, yes, I would vote to mine the lithium. And 
50% said no, protection of the land is more important. And, you know, in terms of survey design, sure, maybe there's some issues with it. Uh, I tried not to lead folks, but I was actually surprised by this because in some ways this presents a uh, what is known as a, a trolley car problem. I, I don't know how, how much our audience is familiar with it, but as a, a philosophical narrative as follows, like you're the driver of a trolley car and you're driving toward five humans and you have the option to save those five humans by turning into one human, right? So you're going to deliberately kill somebody by changing direction, but in effect, you will be saving five. And so it is a little backdoor into a utilitarian argument, but I, I think this, this holds here because there are indigenous groups around the world that are being directly hurt by climate change, thanks to thinning ice and extreme temperatures in desert regions and that affects the way that their traditions their you know food subsistence the way they cultivate crops uh, sometimes even their ability to live on the land because of the rising water levels and so at a certain point there are hard conversations but i i was looking at the the size of this deposit and it's quite massive the other side too of mining lithium and, and cobalt which are necessary ingredients to get to green energy so as, as much as you want to build another solar panel, wind turbine, or alternative energy, there is an immutable problem of the last mile. How do we get that energy saved, stored, and transitioned to the place where we use it, i.e. cars and other devices? You need batteries, and the way that we build batteries are with these minerals, rare earth minerals. And frankly, the fact is that there are known human rights abuses associated with the mining in Africa and around the, you know, cobalt mining, lithium mining have a high human cost. Frankly, an estimated 100,000 cobalt miners in the Congo uh, use hand tools to dig hundreds of feet underground with little oversight, safety measures. There's like real costs associated with this. And so I, I think it's necessary to try to see the whole picture and there are hard conversations i think the the groups in that area have every right to challenge this in court it should be decided in in a fair way you know the obstruction of one group's rights over another's is something that needs to be you know overseen and 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 had a conversation around but i'm i think we found ourselves on either side of this conversation where i think it is a good idea to pull the you know the valued at 1.5 trillion dollars in a safe responsible way in this region that hopefully won't hurt or damage uh, the health of of a local community as much as frankly ignoring climate change which is existential for all of the humans and disproportionately to the ones that are on the front lines of the, the climate change and shift. Yeah, George, I think you bring up a lot of good points. And you're right. I think we actually filled out. <laughs> we, we are the 50-50 split. We are right our, there. Our, our apparently very statistically significant survey results. But... <laughs> I mean, I absolutely agree. The climate emergency is dire and existential for humanity. I think the reason why in this instance, I sided with those groups, right, is I think that we're talking about trillions of dollars, agendas that are central to not only U.S.'s sustainability commitments, but economic roadmaps. 
And I think that it is incumbent that there is a justice lens applied to those priorities, right? So I would hope to see that in the future, even though even if we decide that the, the lithium reserves are big and, and, and really essential um, to these practices, right? Are there some kind of restorative justice uh, type mechanisms we could use to maintain the, the rights and dignity of tribal groups that work on the land, right? I know these are big problems, right? And you also talked about cobalt and, and mining, just like rife with labor abuses, right? It needs to be a both and. Yes, those are solutions, right? But at the same time, we need to be thinking critically and also having the conversations, albeit hard ones, saying, how do we uplift and protect labor that is exploited in those minerals? So I think that, I think it needs to be a both and, right? And I would hope that, um, you know, if the government discovered... <laughs> however many trillion dollars of lithium right let's help out the indigenous communities in america you know like i'm on that team the for sure end of the stick. <laughs> yes yes for sure and and hopefully that is one of the outcomes here where it's not just you know taken without compensation and you know it's hard to put a price on some of these things but when you're pulling 1.5 trillion dollars of uh, rare mineral earth asset out of the ground i'm willing to bet and hopefully more importantly, hope that these these tribes that are being and their history being potentially impacted are fairly compensated. But I think it's just it's an interesting conversation and one that I think is is healthy to have because it stops you from this like nimbyism is like I'm all for green energy as long as it doesn't take place in my backyard, touches anything I care about, or forces me to think whatsoever. Like you don't have to, you can't get that cake. No, George, I think that that's exactly right. And I think that folks who work on issues in development, in human rights, will tell you it needs to be an all-encompassing ap approach, right? It's a human beings and society, they're holistic, right? They're not, they're not separate pieces, right? You can, the uh, indigenous people are some of the people experiencing the brunt of climate change. Um, there's justice elements of building climate resilience in communities that are bearing the brunt of an environmental catastrophe brought on by industrialized countries and places like the United States, right? Like all these components are intertwined. So, but I agree with you, we need to be able to have these nuanced, hard conversations. It's unfortunate that we're not at the place that we can have these conversations when half of our Congress uh, doesn't believe climate change is real. and you know, it's hard, but we persevere. <laughs> That's a different problem. That's a tough one. Yeah. Well, we'll certainly be walking into a 2024 where we'll have competing macro narratives, but this is just sort of, you know, one, it's like a huge positive win for alternative energy, potentially if done right and done fairly, but also a loss for indigenous people's social justice in that area. <laughs> So thanks for having the conversation. Uh, I'm curious, the poll's still out there. Go take it and let us know what you think. We'll try to include more surveys in our nonprofit newsfeed emails as well, as long as I get the links right. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is awesome. And I love, having, I love having fun conversations like this. So more to come on the nonprofit newsfeed. 
podcast. But George, I want to take us into our next story. And this one comes from Nonprofit Quarterly and follows along a similar line of thinking here. And we wanted to report that on August 14th, Montana District Court Judge Kathy Seeley ruled in favor of a group of 16 young Montana residents who brought the country's first constitutional climate lawsuit um, and first youth-led climate lawsuit to trial. The youth here, as Nonprofit Quarterly reports, allege that Montana's, quote, fossil fuel-based state energy system, end quote, contributes to climate change and is therefore a violation of their constitutional right to a safe environment. And the court actually upheld, uh, they agreed with them, ruling in held B state of Montana, quote, determined that a provision in the Montana Environmental Policy Act has harmed the state's environment and that the young plaintiffs, by preventing Montana from considering the climate impacts of energy projects, the provision is accordingly unconstitutional. Uh, George, what a monumental win for youth climate activists. You know, the push for climate activism is is so youth-led, right? Of course, it's many generations, but folks like Greta Thunberg and and others, right, have revitalized the the climate advocacy around the world over the past five, six, seven years, and now taking those cases into the court system and winning. I think that this is a, a tremendous victory that needs to be celebrated both on the merits, but also, from an advocacy perspective, these if these young people are able to go, hey, we took on uh, a state Supreme Court and got them to agree with us. I mean, what a win. That must be so motivating. I'm like fired up. Like, let's do it. You know? Yeah. Well, I think the, the nonprofit behind this is also worth uh, a look here as well. And, and this group is called the Our Children's Trust. It's a nonprofit law firm founded in 2010 to serve the public interest. And they've filed similar suit for, for youth in Hawaii, actually. And so you, you see them trying to, to run this play as an, ongoing, as an ongoing tactic and a way for young people to, to be heard. And that's, you know, the ultimate truth. It's like their, you know, futures being impacted. On the other side of it, you know, you see the... A group saying that like Montana objectively is just can't be blamed for changing the climate, right? So like why Montana? Well, we had, you know, the opportunity and the way to do it there, but like Montana is certainly alone, not acting, but that is the problem. That's the tragedy of the commons. So I'm curious to see how this unfolds state by state and, and what these settlements actually end up looking like with regard to how states, I guess, change the way that they uh, interact with fossil fuels. Yeah, no, George, I think that that's a, a great analysis. We'll continue to see this because I think this is alluding to what you said, not the last we're going to see of this type of litigation. So something we'll definitely keep our eye on moving forward. All right. And I can take us pivoting away a little bit from climate this is from foxnews.com, and the Florida Department of Law Enforcement has issued an arrest warrant for Tiffany Carr, the former CEO of the Florida Coalition Against Domestic Violence. The state began investigating the agency after learning Carr received $7.5 million in compensation, much of it in relation to paid time off for the three years before she resigned in November 19. They also arrested their CFO for this investigation, money laundering, fraud, charging for services never provided. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it was, it's a criminal scheme, right? It's, it's a allegedly, 
Allegedly. Alleged, alleged, alleged criminal scheme in the great state of Florida. <laughs> George, what do we think about this? You know, I, I don't generally like pulling up nonprofit frauds, but I think there's a couple of things here. One is that note that like it's also the, you know, the chief financial officers of the organization being called to bear. Because if you're writing that check and if you're knowingly interacting with that type of processing, yes, you are, you are liable. Just because the CEO tells you to pay them an exorbitant amount of money that maybe was unjustified, when you process that money, when your financial team signs the okay, even potentially when your board knowingly approves things, like, guess what? Like, that is part of a potential fraud. So really, I hope that it's if you see something, say something situation for the financial oversight. The other thing that I found interesting when I was pulling this up is it it seems that and you're like, I don't I'll just put my cards on the table. I don't love Fox. <laughs> I don't I don't think they are good. I think they are bad. I think uh, it whatever. I don't need to go that rant. But it seems to be that when these these types of nonprofit focused frauds happen, that it's actually Fox covering it a lot more than other outlets. Like I looked through quite a number uh, of sources, and I actually just think that there's like a bit more of this bias, maybe in their reporting and their view to cover this, and then there's the opposite bias to say, "Oh goodness, you know, it's this seems like it could have been uh, you know, a well-meaning domestic violence group in in Florida," you know don't give it airtime. And so it's just sort of a an interesting subtle narrative that that I saw just when doing the the news analysis on this. Yeah, George, I think that that's an interesting interesting analysis. I think we saw this as well with the National Black Lives Matter organization um yeah. which also came under scrutiny for potentially improper expenditure, not filing proper tax documents, etc. It was the the Fox News of the world reporting on that story, right? Because it fit their agenda. But it doesn't mean that the facts of the story are necessarily untrue. There there was valid, you know, neutral objective reporting that that underlied that fact. And quite frankly, like nonprofits have reputations to uphold. Um, in many ways, reputations are a huge amount of nonprofits' legitimacy. And I think that um uh, yeah, I, I just boards, executives and nonprofits need to be careful. All right, I'll take us into our uh, next article. This is again from Business Insider. And George, this is a this is a fun one. Mark Zuckerberg um, and Priscilla Chan, um, husband and wife, announced they're building a computing system to help eliminate human disease uh, by 2100. But the costs may be hefty. Um, how are they going to do it? Um, in short, they don't really yet know. Um, <laughs> they're uh, basically going to build a giant supercomputer AI network type system, um, map uh, tons of different cells and DNA and try to create some kind of encyclopedia of cells. I am not a biologist. Um, I did not do well in biology in high school. Um, I read books in high school. I did not do math or science. Um, but this data could be used to make new discoveries that completely eliminate human disease. Um, they're building a big computer to solve biology problems, uh, potentially eliminating all disease. George, marketing, uh, actual belief in this system, 
Um, they're going to be using 10,000 graphics processing units. Um, George, what's going on here? Is this is this Zuckerberg trying to create a, a metaverse of... I'll just sort of note their, their last big gift, you know, that $100 million to, to Newark schools. Uh, and you can look this up, actually. Uh, didn't go as long as they had hoped. So I don't know. I, I think if you're, you know, attempt to change one school, school system in one small section of one state um, for a big bet didn't do anything. You might as well go for a bigger bet. Um, but at least this is in the field of technology and one that they're familiar with. Uh, setting a goal of like 2100 is, you know, it does check the boxes of big, huge, audacious uh, in terms of a goal. But you're, you're in some ways building a bridge <laughs> from one side and you can't see the other side. And so sometimes I, I wonder if this is, you know, what parts ego, one parts practical in terms of an expenditure of funds. Like if the technology is simply not there and you're going to be spending in this direction, but not see results for a hundred years, there's times to make that bet. Um, and there's other times where let's say our goal was in 1900 to, move people across the the country. And we were like, well, we're going to need a lot of horses for that. Well, we better invest in a giant, giant horse farm in infrastructure to do that. Because how else are you going to get that much, you know, stuff from here to there? Um, obviously, we're using railroads, but I'm using this analogy appropriately so because we are just now playing with AI technology to which we don't understand or comprehend the, the full extent of. We can't even tell in many ways how these black boxes, uh, in fact, work. So uh, I, have, I have caution in terms of like, doing that hopefully there are wins along the way but you know anytime this level of investment gets uh, gets sent i think it's important to to look out um but it also seems internal building a computing system internally is like wait a minute we're redirecting funds to building out our own gpus which is the way that you've these ai tools so there's that it's interesting very interesting <laughs> uh i'm i george i i share your skepticism Although I would be pleasantly surprised if they're able to eliminate human disease. Yeah, and no, I'm rooting for I that. <laughs> I mean, I, I, spoiler, I'm not going to be around to see if they achieve this goal, but go get them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> All right. I'll take us into our uh, last story and then a feel good. Um, uh, just a PSA out there that the nonprofit movie Uncharitable. Um, that's UN Charitable Uncharitable, um, which, among other things, talks about the nonprofit sector, the overhead myth, um, sustainability and innovation in the nonprofit sector, um, combating myths uh, and public perceptions about um, how nonprofits can and should operate, is now playing uh, at limited release in select theaters. Um, if there's a theater in your city that's known for playing those small indie documentaries, um, it might be there. You can go to uncharitablemovie.com slash where to watch. Yeah, interesting. Uh, we'll we'll eventually get to to watch it. I had the chance. I wasn't able to at a, at a conference recently, but I, I will. I'll probably hit you on streaming once it gets there. Let's be honest. I don't have time to go to a theater. <laughs> I hear you. Maybe we'll do a movie review. Uh, that would be fun. All right. And then last but not least, George, we have to end on a feel-good story. And this one comes from uh, ConnecticutPublic.org, um, an NPR affiliate, and free babysitting on Broadway. There is a nonprofit helping parents 
get to the theater. So P-A-A-L, PAL, the Parent Artist Advocacy League for Performing Arts and Media, um, is essentially offering uh, babysitting and childcare services um, for folks to enjoy the theater, go to Broadway. Um, so on Saturday, parents with tickets to Here Lies Love, the matinee performance, um, who register in advance will be able to drop off their kids a block away at a rehearsal studio staffed by Broadway babysitters. George, you and I are huge theater fans. We're huge Broadway fans. And um, childcare is damn expensive, uh, especially in places like New York and California. And this just is, this sounds like a win, 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 win. Well, I bring it up too, because we were talking about some of the declining participation in theater. And one of the problems is, you know, the rising costs of childcare. So, you know, if there's a way to bake that into your your show, your production, your promotion, it's interesting to see groups like this doing that. Uh, speaking as a parent, <laughs> that would increase the chances that I would go <laughs> greatly. Awesome. All right, Nick, you know what time it is. And I have a question for you. Uh, why does the American Nurse Foundation, the American Nurse Foundation, like red crayons? Why do the nurses like crayons? I don't know. Uh, sometimes they need to draw blood. Oh, because it's a, it's a crayon. <laughs> <laughs> I get it out. Uh, <laughs> and a little more info uh, about uh, Nurse Foundation is that uh, with an aging population and burdened healthcare system, the power of nursing is needed more than ever. Uh, it's time for the nation to recognize the dedication of our 4 million invaluable registered nurses and the lives they touch. So there you go. The more you know. All right, Nick. See you out there. See you, George. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for this week of nonprofit news. You can find all of the links from the news articles we discussed at nonprofitnewsfeed.com. And all you have to do is sign up for our free weekly email summary. I hope it was helpful and gave you some new ways to think about the sector.